Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're talking with Liz Ross. Liz is co-founder and director of VAI, the Vegan Advocacy Initiative, formerly the Coalition of Vegan Activists of Color a woman of color-led nonprofit organization. VAI is an animal advocacy and vegan food justice organization that creates events to encourage the public to consider a holistic way of thinking that upholds animal rights. VAI supports a shift toward creating alternative food systems that exclude cruelty toward non-human sentient animals. Through their projects, VAI encourages others to consider a new way of thinking that animal rights must be part of the food justice and environmental justice movements in order to create more sustainable and fair systems. Liz recognizes the importance of building relationships with the food, environmental, and other social justice movements. She's also co-creator of the People of Color Animal Rights Advocacy and Food Justice Conference which takes place in Los Angeles each year and is organized through the Vegan Advocacy Initiative. Liz also gives presentations on why issues of racism and classism matter when doing effective vegan outreach. She is an active member of Black Skeptics Los Angeles, BSLA, which is committed to community building and promoting social justice work through a secular humanist perspective in Southern California. Each year, BSLA spearheads its First in the Family Scholarship Fund, which provides financial resources to undocumented, foster care, homeless, system-involved, and LGBTQ youth of color to help absorb some of their college expenses. A former police officer, Liz also raises awareness about the history of racial bias in the criminal justice system mass incarceration, and the so-called war on drugs through presentations. She also volunteers for organizations that are working to counter its negative impact. Liz, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Collections. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me, Michelle. I really, really appreciate it. It's it's an honor. This is a great uh, podcast. I've listened to some of your past interviews, and um, it's awesome. Um, well, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. As I read about you and I saw, and I often talk about the intersectionality, and that I think that more people are thinking about it, I said, you know, you and I definitely had to talk. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions, I mean, to me about 
being a vegan and what it means and there's, then that it's more to it. Often, you know, just as out of curiosity, I went around and asked people who I know. And I said, you know, well, what do you think? And they said, oh, you know, no meat, no dairy. Or they only <laughs> thought about it, you know, really. Or it's like they only thought about it as, as a dietary thing or a trendy new restaurant. Or it's like, yeah, just nuts and berries. Or they'd say, you know, and then when I start to talk about, you know, about animal rights and stuff, and it's like, you know, that's sort of an eye roll, you know, <laughs> the eye roll. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, uh-huh, you know, I know, we know you love your cat, but, you know, we're talking about a cow. And it's like, you know, I'm going like, no, there's sentient beings. Where, yep. Where's home for you? And, and at home, is that where this came to you to start to think beyond, um, you know, what's on the table? Home as in, as in what area I live in the, in the country or the world? Well, um, where, where, would, where do you call home when you think of home and when you think of your roots? So I was, uh, I was born and raised in Trinidad in the Caribbean, and mm-hmm. I left there when I was um, 21. So I was pretty much nurtured and bred as a Trinidadian, as a Trini, as we say. And I moved to uh, Canada for three years, and then I moved to the United States, of which I went to college here. And um, right after college, I moved to California because I always wanted to be in California because, of course, TV makes California the best place to be as far as (laughs) Uh Um, So, yeah, so I moved here, and I've pretty much – spent my time in the Bay Area and L.A. and also uh, some time in um, South Florida as well. So um, I, I consider myself, you know, I, I try to, of course, I feel uh, pride in the place that I was brought up. Um, I'm actually leaving to go visit in uh, two weeks. Um, however, I, I try to... I see myself more as a human first, more than connected to a specific nation, because I think mm-hmm. that the national pride thing sometimes gets us into trouble. <laughs> so, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. So you know, I see myself as a as as a black woman as more than let's say tied to anything else. Um, now you know, when when I think of you know, because to me. Home and food kind of goes back and forth. There's parts of it like when I think of home, I think about things about home, you know, like I think and and food. Like I know that I have friends who are like from the South, and when they think of certain food, they take of certain food things. When I think of, of food and home, I remember my mother always telling us, you know, like you didn't get more than you were going to eat. It was better to go back and get, you know, that second helping. And... Then also the quality of food. Is there something like that that influences you? Maybe you're not eating the same kind of food that you ate as a child, but in your thinking about food. So when it, the reason why I actually became vegan, um, and and that ties into to food justice issues as well mm-hmm. um, later on. But the reason why I became vegan was two things. One was that someone planted a seed in my head when I was in college. 
um, I met a guy and he, we became friends and he was a vegetarian and he talked about how chickens, uh, factory farm chickens, the conditions mm-hmm. of the chickens, um, how they are so cramped that they, they have a pecking order. So they end up pecking each other in this very stressful situation and, and um, it becomes very violent. So what the factory farms, uh, what the, the people in the factory farms do is that they, they, actually, um, they actually cut their beaks. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing he talked about was that they fed them a lot of food to the fact, to the point that they would eat and then throw up and eat and then throw up, and then because they were so packed in these cages, their feet would actually start bleeding because it's like wire mesh. All the poop would go down to the bottom, and the workers actually had to wear masks when they actually got into the slaughter, the factory farms. So it's actually toxic for workers as well. So he described all that to me, but I actually wasn't even hearing it because I just thought he was this cute guy listening to him. I was 21, you know, I was, but I was disconnected from it. Um, I grew up in a world where my mother actually, when I was five, I have memories of her taking me to a, a, a local slaughterhouse where, you know, she literally picked a chicken, you know, pointed and say, that's the chicken that uh-huh. I want. They they literally slit the chicken's throat, um, de-gut the chicken, de-feathered the chicken, bagged it, you know, put it in a bag, and we took it home. So, you know, that was normalized. Uh, yeah. So as a child, I, I you know, it wasn't like happy times, but it was just an observation that in my child's brain I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. So... Um, you know, we're vulnerable as children, and we, we sort of normalize what we see. So it wasn't until I was actually living in South Florida about eight years ago that I was at that time, I'm telling my age, um, I was, I think, about 42, and um, I started to actually get, um, I had gastric reflux disease. Yeah, I would sleep on an incline. Um, my menstrual cramps were just very, um, it was very painful. Um, I actually started to get about, you know, knee pain and folks were like, okay, you're getting old. That's kind of like the stuff that happens. And I thought to myself, I just started to visualize all the people in my family and, and around me who were over 50 in their 60s and 70s um, on medication. And I thought to myself, I don't want to be that person. So those were two things. One was the seed that this um, this young man planted in, in college that that stayed with me. The memory mm-hmm. of the animal stayed with me. So wh- the way that came together was that I was cutting up a piece of chicken, a chicken leg, and the chicken's leg was broken. And I said, hmm, did the chicken's leg break before she died? or after she died. And that was when, for the first time, I actually started to visualize this live, breathing being with feelings, with eyes, feeling anxiety, being put Mm -hmm. in a situation where, you know, as humans, being the powerful beings there, not speaking their language, not knowing what's going on, just being thrown into this situation, smelling the blood, 
listening to the fear of the other chickens, and that's when I had an aha moment. And I said to myself, I can't do this anymore. Maybe there's something about this kind of violence that is connected to what's going on in my body. When I went to the doctor, the doctor about my gastric reflux, the doctor said, well, you know, you have to stay away from uh, milk. I I was already lactose intolerant, which is actually, um, you know, we're the only human species who drink milk as adults. And we're mm-hmm. lactose intolerant because this is a normal, um, a normal process that the body goes through as they are adults where you lose that enzyme to digest the milk, um, your mother's milk. So the doctor said, stay away from pizza, stay away from tomato sauce, stay away from milk, um, a number of things. And that, and that didn't work. And what actually did, Michelle, was when I decided to go vegan. Mm. So... But I didn't know, I didn't know the word vegan at that time. I just knew that I didn't want to eat animals anymore. So I bought a few books. Um, the first one I read was actually um, Eat to Live by Mark Furman. He has a, a few books. And um, because I actually, I, I run half marathons, there was another one called Thrive Diet that was based you know, because, of course, like everyone else, I was concerned about my protein, which happened to be mm-hmm. a myth. And then, but what actually turned me more to an ethical vegan was when I actually read the book called Slaughterhouse. I think her name is Gail Eisnitz. She has a German name. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started to read about the exploitation of both the workers and the animals. And that there, for example, there's a, a high incidence, there's studies have shown that there's a high incidence of domestic violence with workers who tend to be more involved with, you know, slaughtering the animals. Um, there's also a lot of, um, so because the turnover is high and because many of these people obviously are poor or undocumented, they don't have the power, if they complain about an issue, they can be easily fired. So there's mm-hmm. this sort of fear that you can't really speak up to demand your rights. Um, so what happens with these slaughterhouses is because there is sort of like assembly line and you have to actually kill certain animals at a specific time, sometimes the animals don't die. So as they're going through the process of being killed um, or skinned or whatever, they're actually fighting back. They don't want to die. And what mm-hmm. happens, if you get hit by a cow and you're holding a knife, you might end up cutting off your hand. So these things, you know, when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. And I also, she also actually walked you through the actual stage from the beginning to end of each animal, the pigs, the cows, the ones that uh, we in the U.S. tend to, tend to consume, um, as well as dairy cows, which go through a unbelievable misery. Mm-hmm. I was literally mad at the world. I said, how come nobody told me that this was happening and I didn't know? I felt that I was participating in a system of violence that no one asked me to participate in, that the culture in general um, conditioned my mind to normalize it and to also make it invisible. So I didn't have a choice 
in that situation. Go ahead. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, you bring so many, many things to me because I can recall as, as recognizing that, you know, to think about that and that there's a traumatic thing that it does to people as they see it. I mean, when we were a kid, I remember we had an aunt who she would, we would play with the chickens all day. After a while, she would go pick one out and literally wring its neck and, 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 and it would jump up and run around and we, I was just horrified by that and you know and then we had also had a neighbor who who was Italian she'd go to the market and I had been to the market with her and I know that smell of where chickens are are sort of uh, packed in and she'd take one out and it'd stay in the yard all day and then she'd whack off its head and it's like you know that these are beings you know yes. you know that it's these are beings and that thought I mean how horrific and I mean, even not all, I mean, so that's how I, I definitely get, you know, that, that then we get desensitized because, well, after a while, well, guess what? You know, my mother would take us into the market and it was already packaged up. So you didn't think about Aunt Helen wringing the chicken's neck or Maria chopping yeah. off of it. You know, you became just desensitized to it. And like you said, in, in this, you know, really convenient day where you're going and getting it, often people don't think about it and I think you know when I was talking earlier about the the eye rolling you know I remember those but I also have seen the documentaries and how the chickens are done and that what they do to cows that's not how a cow lives how they're forcing feeding them and so it's not being as someone told me you know what do they call me I want to say a tree hugger or something like that or or you just call they're they're just they're just food these are beings yes yes I I totally agree. When I, um, so when I was living in Oakland, I, um, so I've lived in the U.S. for pretty much all of my adult life. And when I was living in Oakland, I remember, what was her name? Betty White would come out and talk about, um, she would do dog rescue stuff. Mm-hmm. Doing about dogs. And I remember um, we used to look at him, at her and say, you know, look at these white people. They're just all into this animal rights stuff because they don't want to deal with the real issues, which is racism and sexism and all that stuff. And that's how we dismissed, easily dismissed the issue of animal exploitation, the whole idea that animal rights is basically animal whites, W-H-I-T-E-S. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, so... What we try to do at Vegan Advocacy Initiative is we, one of the things we do is is we bring up these discussions um, among people of color. Um, We have a conference that uh, last year was a a huge success. It was the most most diverse group of vegans you will ever, you have ever seen in an environment, an animal rights or a vegan food justice environment. And it was fantastic because the speakers were all people of color. Um, we, we basically provide a platform for vegans and uh, who are people of color, who are activists and doing work in these areas. And it was fantastic to hear how they went into their communities and had discussions with whether friends, families, uh, neighbors, um, the kinds of, of uh, uh, events that they have, you know, something similar, some, something like, let's say, um, like in L.A., there's this thing called a Macdown, 
that a friend mm-hmm. of mine had actually decided to do. So it's basically a mac and cheese contest. Um, so you sort of find ways to bring people in to, number one, try vegan food because I, I think some of the – one of the – first thing I find that people do when you talk about these issues is they think that they're giving something up. And they think that they're giving up good, tasty food. Yeah, the old just nuts and berries thing. Yeah. uh So when you introduce tasty foods to them, it's a way that you can start connecting with them and start creating a conversation. Because now you're getting... You're, 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 you're reaching them where they are because if not, that's the underlining thing that's going to come up, and it's going to come up in different ways. One is that we don't care about the animals. Number two is it's a white people thing um, and all the other reasons. What are we going to do with all the cows when they leave? You know, if we are vegan, mm-hmm. you know, what about insects? You know, all these things. So um, usually when you grab people with food, that helps. Um, another thing that I find that seems to appeal to people, is health issues. Although I find that I don't always like to go that route because you can be vegan and unhealthy as well. You can have sweet stuff that's vegan. Even though the health aspect, I really believe that my diet is the most healthy for me. I really do. Mm -hmm. And I find that there have been changes in my body that has been positive. And if somebody, if I can connect with somebody starting there, that's great because, again, that's making a connection. But I think at the end of the day, I want to explore the issue of us participating in a violent system, understanding that many of us actually mean well. We don't want to hurt animals. So why is it do we have a, a love our dogs and cats and we'll cry like babies if they're gone, but we don't? feel the same way for other sentient, sentient beings who socialize, they, they care for their young, they feel pain, they feel joy, um, they don't want to be part of the system. So what I try to do is you connect, you know, I think it's important to connect with people where they are and then start talking about these systems of violence and do we want to participate in this because even though each, oppress, each oppression has its specific characteristics, when we look at racism and uh, sexism, homophobia, or I, I, I usually say anti-LGBTQ as opposed mm-hmm. to the phobia part because I don't think people are so much afraid. And also speciesism. Speciesism is, is you know, when... People think humans are at the top of the, you know, food chain. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, that animals are there for our service um, and that they are lower beings. So all these things, when you look at these systems of oppression, you see a couple things in common, and that is that we are socialized to believe certain things on the basis of how how we feel about certain groups that are actually not true. So, for example, um, we will cuddle our dog and have um, really feel connected to our dog, but pigs are just as intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, we find that, you know, kittens are cute, but lambs are just as cute. 
Um, so a lot of I've read where where they say that dogs and and pigs tend to actually um, have the intelligence of a two-year-old or three-year-old. I think when it comes to social justice, um, and I really my vision and and you know what I would like to see and what VAI as a new organization wants to start having a discussion about animal rights as a social justice issue. Um, because social justice, the definition of social justice is about fairness. And if it is, you know, I really believe that people are well-meaning. I don't believe that they want to hurt animals. Nobody, you know, if I take a dog and I just dropped a dog from a two-story building, people will be like, oh, my gosh, that was horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, so the difference is about our conditioning. Um, we see that in all the other is- isms as well. It's about the conditioning. And I think once we start having discussions about the kinds of conditioning that makes us contradict our um, deep sense of compassion and fairness, I think that's when we start to have real discussions um, as opposed to being judgmental. And knowing that, like all the other isms, it's a process. Some people, um, you know, they can go vegan Easily, some people it takes longer. Some people want to, but they may not have access, or they may have other things going on in their in their lives, which makes it very stressful. You know, I so, think that that's one one of the things like that I recognize about communities of color. I mean, I hear both parts because I know that some of the fiercest advocates, many people who know about it and get the intersectionality could come from people who are in communities of color. But often those are the ones who, when you say, well, you know, they'll go like, oh, you know, you're not going to have ribs, you're not going to have this, I have to have that, I have to have that. And then, like you said, when you have like something like a mac and cheese and they go like, oh, this is good. And then they try something else. And then around that table, you're able to start to have these conversations that go deeper because many of them like you said might not have access to the things that they'd like to do in order to do it or think they don't have access to it until you start to have these conversations exactly and people also need to know that they're not going to die on a vegan diet they need to know that it is healthy um, it can be healthy and you can get all your vitamins and minerals that you need um, the only thing I take is a, a B12 supplement, and that's because um, it, B12 comes from, uh, and I'm not a scientist, so, so don't quote me on, on <laughs> the part, but it is an organism. Animals eat that, um, and then we ingest it. That's how we get the B12. If I was in the woods somewhere that's not um, riddled with pesticide spray, I can grab a carrot, eat it without washing it, and still get my B12. But that's not the society in which we live. You know, food has to be washed because we have, um, mm-hmm. you know, laws that protect us from, from diseases and so on. Um, and I don't live out in the, in the woods somewhere where there's, no, you know, the soil is just so rich that I can just grab a carrot. So this is why I take my, my B12, and it is encouraged for a vegan diet. And that's pretty much it. The other thing I take is a vitamin D, but that's because I work all day, most of the time, you know, um, recently in-house. And that seems to be recommended for just anybody, regardless of if you're vegan or not. So, but other than that, 
I mean, I my body is just thanking me every day. Um, I actually, someone asked me how I felt three months after I became vegan, and I said I felt less polluted. Um, I felt my body felt lighter. It felt less polluted. So I think it's personally, I think it's one of the best things I did for my body. But also, you know, the larger perspective, as we were talking about, is is the idea, just the journey that we have to try to live a consistent life with our values of compassion and and look for those contradictions in where we live our lives and try to to fix them. And you know, I mean, and if you. Um, I know a lot of people who who study Buddhism, and you know, and when you're thinking of your body as this temple, how you're interacting with the rest of the world, and and living rightly. I mean, you know, this this also. I mean, it, it's like it's almost like this is like transcends so many things that if you put it in your mind and how you think about it, not only what you how you're treating yourself, how you're treating the environment, because. If you're forcing someone to have to work in one of these factories and stuff because you don't want to have this this hard conversation about what you're eating, you are contributing right. to their oppression. So I mean, it's it's just like so much to I, think about more than no meat, no dairy. You know. Yeah, I agree. You are we're contributing to that that form of oppression um, for both beings. And and yes, I, I you know I, I'm reading this this book, um, basically it's, it's following the tomato. And um, it's just an example using one, um, one fruit. Uh, tomato, actually, I think it's actually technically a fruit, but fruits or vegetables. And just following the trail um, from when it's being picked to when it's on the market. And the book starts off basically saying, isn't it interesting that we literally have to do research to find out where our food comes from because back in the day, we didn't have to. You just go outside and you pick your food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. now we have a system in which we don't see the violence with regards to farm workers, slaughterhouse workers, or the animals. Um, and I think it's important. That's why I think um, you know, food justice is so important, you know, particularly in my opinion, for people of color, because we are the ones who tend to be exploited most in the system, whether outside in the global south or here in the U.S. And I believe that animal exploitation does tie in with human exploitation and suffering in the food justice system. And we need to create a movement in which we are more conscious eaters And if we feel disconnected from a pig, but we love our dog, we need to ask ourselves why that is the case and start looking at the animals who we feel disconnected with. And, you know, YouTube has tons of videos that that actually um, show animal behavior. And let's start thinking instead of what can animals do for us, who are they? And that's a different question when we ask, who are they? Um, and I think it's, it's what we should do for humans as well, not what they can do for us, but who are they? Who are you? What is your essence? What is your, what, is your, um, what are you thinking? Um, how do we connect, you know, as, as uh, conscious beings? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's my philosophy. 
Well, we're going to come back with it. We're going to take our first break here. And if you're just joining us, we are talking with one of the founders of the Vegan Advocacy Initiative, Liz Ross. Um, We'll be right back. This is Collections by Michelle Brown. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're back talking with Liz Ross. And, you know, Liz, you know, the more that you think about, because like you said, it used to be maybe, you know, I can remember we had gardens and, you know, in the summer we go out and and that was the best part of summer because you could go out and pick some stuff. And now, I mean, it is so connected because even if you want to go like this, we hear now about, you know, the pesticides and, you know, so even if you do plant there's things that the wind can carry it on here. So you can't even be sure of what you're getting. And again, when you go back to that whole link, you have the people who are often tasked with picking these vegetables, maintaining these fields, are people of color, people at the bottom of a socioeconomic rung. And just like we know what happens when these vegetables get in us that have the these that are genetically modified or have pesticides, you know, to think about not only was that what happens with them, then you find out how they're using, they're forcing steroids and other chemicals into animals just so that they're bigger to, I guess, make our plates look like they look good. And when you said, you know, this needs to be something that is important, for people of color. And I looked at the video of your last conference and it was, I mean, I mean, it must've been great for you to see these other people coming and get it. But what new message do we need to be saying to our communities of color? that this is important. This is, is it, this affects more than just what's on your plate. It's affecting your life. It's affecting where you are. It's the environment. What do we need yeah. to be saying to communities of color? So, there are two approaches that you see to animal rights activism. One, one I don't agree with, and that's basically shaming and blaming. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you eat animals, there's something wrong with you kind of um, attitude, and um, it, it's wrong. Um, although I personally do believe that way. It's part of my moral uh, framework. But doing activism is a totally different world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, And the other approach is to connect with people where they are and start having conversations and dialogue. And and that, I think, is is extremely important to have because the animals themselves don't have a seat at the table. Um, So they don't get to have a discussion and call us out on our speciesism. So we have to do that with each other. And I think um, what, what I tend to do is... I, as I live by example, I am open to having discussions with people. And I get a lot of people asking me questions. People are very inquisitive 
Um, I did, um, so last year we had this potluck where vegans of color went to, um, there's a place that I actually volunteer at, it's called a New Way of Life Reentry Project, and women who have been formerly incarcerated, they stay at um, resi- these residences, um, and Susan Burton, who is actually the founder there and her team, they provide support for them, legal support, um, um, and, and reconnect with their family, get jobs, and, and so on. And we had a, a, a potluck there. The food system in the jails are horrible. I mean, mm-hmm. just coming back, your body is in shock. But, and they were very, very open to asking questions. They were like, so they wanted to know, they wanted to hear. And I think people, if we provide a space for them, like I said, people don't want to see animals being hurt, but they don't want to feel that they're giving something up. You know, so it's important to have these dialogues because food is so much a part of our rituals. It's so much a part of celebrations. Um, It's so much a part of our comfort food. It's what we turn to when we're having a hard day after work or we're bored at work not wanting to be there and having to grab stuff or we're taking the kids from work to home to school. Who has time to think about trying to, to create a new way of thinking, a new way of eating? So um, we are going to be providing programs, like a six-week program, in which people can come uh, once a week, and we show videos, we have discussions, um, we have a workshop-type setting, we take them to a farm sanctuary so they can actually touch a cow, feel a cow, look Mm -hmm. in the cow's eyes, Um, same with the other animals, um, hear their story. so it's, it's a way that people can have discussions, and they can mentor each other as well. Um, just showing videos of, of what's going on in slaughterhouse workers, sometimes that works for people and sometimes it does not. Um, but we're interested in having dialogues and discussions with people so that when they go into their own communities with their own family members, they can have discussions. And I've had lots of discussions with people. Some people um, are like, you know, well, you know, I, I just like to eat meat. But mm. most of the people I've spoken to are very open, uh, whether they're at work, whether they're my family members. Some of them have become vegan. Um, most of them are, have cut down on their animal intake a lot. So it's a starting dialogue. You know, what do you do when we have discussions about racism or sexism or whatever? We have dialogues, and, and I think... Um, that is important to me, to have these dialogues. And when I talk about it in terms of how we're socialized, and that is a violent system, which is part of other oppressive systems, that's when particularly I find people of color can start listening and, and thinking about it, is when we frame it in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are we actually participating in and how do we want to move to a world that's better than what is going on now? Well, you know, one of the things that, I mean, in, a, in talking about that, that we've done here, because I'm in Michigan, and, you know, we have a lot of, like, we have one area where it's, like, all up and coming, but out in the hood, you have yeah. a lot of community gardening because one of the things that come across to people is, you know, 
I got to feed my family. We got to have food. So we've had community gardening where not only do you find that you're growing food that feeds people, but then people are able to talk about food. And then, as you were saying, like, we've done, like, tried to get some kids out to places where they can, you know, see animals or something other than either, you know, roaming the streets, throw away, or, you know, their feline or canine brother or sister so that they can see, like you said, to see, I mean, just we have taken them just to see horses and they're like, wow, you know, it's looking at me. Exactly. You know, and, uh, <laughs> and then, like you said, and, and when you go into this whole history, like, well, how did we come to get away from eating better things and, and getting that, how that is also a part of institutionalized racism where we got that thrown away food. That might not yeah. have been the best thing to go in. So, I mean, around food, like so much happens around the kitchen table, but this is like really like expanding the kitchen table to talk about, like you said, who doesn't have a seat. They might have ended up on the table, but who should have a seat around this table? Exactly. And what you just expressed is the kind of conversations we want to have where people – where people are coming up with this news. They're like having an aha moment. So when I start off talking about systems of oppression, then they start thinking in their head about systems of oppression. You know, mm-hmm. um, they start thinking about racism, for example. So that's when, you know, it starts to connect. When I start talking about the food system, you know, that starts to connect as well. Um, we used to be farmers. We used mm-hmm. to be farmers. And, you know, the Africans who were enslaved, when a lot of them, they came up, they used to actually hide seeds in their hair because we know that, you know, if you have food and you have um, power over your food, you have power. So um, we used to be farmers, and then what happened was that the system of chattel slavery has created a disconnect in which now some of us associate farming as a negative thing it's important for us to understand that history and understand that we cannot allow the system of slavery to now determine or how, determine how we need to have um, power over our food system. And in my, my situation as a vegan activist, power to that means that we have to minimize the amount of suffering that is involved in our food system. And um, if we don't need to eat animals, why do we? If we don't need to exploit other people, why, why, why should we? Let's figure out fair systems as humans relating to each other, buying, selling food, sharing food. Um, right now, I, I live in an apartment, so I don't, it doesn't have um, space for growing food. So I got to know my neighbors. And um, I've been here for a little less than a year. And my neighbor next door who also rents, it's a family, they have um, a backyard. So three of us got together and decided, um, I, I came to both of them and said, and then another neighbor, and said, hey, you know, why don't we start growing some food? So I told them, I said, I'm taking a class, you know, in, in Gardening, Victory Gardens has classes like literally throughout the United States. Um, and I took a class and then we built a raised bed. The soil was actually contaminated. Yeah, so um, because I lived in the city, so we had to do a raised bed. We had to dig about six inches out and then uh, create a raised bed. And now we're growing food. 
Um, I just cooked today. I went outside next door and I grabbed thyme, I grabbed a tomato, I grabbed parsley, I grabbed oregano. So I, I, I encourage everybody to plant something because if you plant something, even though you're not a gardener, that sets your mind thinking a different way. And when these initiatives come up, um, where we need to have new initiatives, for example, in L.A., um, because people start planning on sidewalks, they were cited because somebody complained, and it was the people who planted food, whether it was in a pot or outside, who saw the value in changing the initiatives and going to their um, council people to say, let's change this law. And now there is a law in L.A. that says you can plant on your sidewalk. But the people who involved were mostly the ones who planted food because it started to set something off in their head. That's why I encourage people to plant something because there's, there's power in planting something. I always thought people who plant things, it's like, okay, there's a look, the way they... <laughs> The way they explain it is a little bit different. And now I know because when I went out this morning and I saw my tomato that was a little bit, you know, orangey yesterday and now it's more red and I can see the beauty of this, this wonderful tomato, it's just amazing to me. I, I think it's powerful. And hopefully we can build on this grassroots movement. Mm -hmm. It's very small, very small right now, and we're coming up against, of course, industries. But I hardly go to a supermarket now because living in California, I'm fortunate to be living um, literally half a mile from farmer's markets. But could you imagine if everyone did that like they did at the turn of the 20th century? That would be amazing. Um, well, you know, you we had like the you... Vichy Gardens in 1945. Mm -hmm you know, where there was a scarcity of food and where the U.S. and, and um, England said, you know, we need a supply of food. And they had initiatives, which was Victory Garden. They had incentives for people to plant. So we can make changes. We can definitely well, you, make changes. Well, you know, that's one of the things, you know, I tell you, um, when we were working with youth, we would find huge, amazing vacant lot. And no one knew what was underneath it, but they knew that it wasn't. We did raised beds is because we took them to get horse manure. And they spent like the day cleaning out the stables, playing with the horses, getting to know the horses and doing it, and building up the soil from that. I mean, and it took like a couple of years of building up the soil and doing everything. But then one year, they were planting food. And it brought, yeah. and it went from being a huge vacant lot to this was a community garden where not only did kids come in their summer vacation to come and work in these gardens and grow things and experiencing that joy of seeing something grow, but people right. in the neighborhood come by and pick stuff growing. But it also gave them the opportunity to sort of say like that the horse was something more than what they were, someone had only seen a horse with a police officer on it. Chasing. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I totally agree. I totally mm -hmm. agree. I, I think, you know, I, I am very uh, much believe is that we, ha we have to look at this in a holistic way um, because it is a mindset. It's a change in paradigm. It's a shift in a mindset. Um, just looking at veganism as a diet is not going to 
work. There is a high turnover. People start and then they, they're like, okay, they get tired. I don't have any choices. I'm bored or whatever. But which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting because you have more. It's limitless what you can actually cook and create. But if you have that mindset of going into it, in my opinion, from a way of pushing back against the status quo, which is oppressive, I think that to me and to many people, not everybody, some people just look, you know, I just want food that tastes good. That's, that's all I want. Mm-hmm. But I think many of us, if, you, if we can change that paradigm, I think, I think we're going to go places. And I think this movement um, is going to be a social justice movement, which I believe it is a social justice movement. But it's not taken seriously as that because everybody's thinking more of, you know, the health aspect as it meaning, you know, it's going to like a losing weight diet thing. Unfortunately, um, you know, not all, but many white vegans who are not looking, who are not taking an intersectional approach, when they're out there, it distances people who um, are interested in taking an intersectional approach. Because if you don't, you're going to piss people off and do things like show, like I see um, some of these organizations, they'll show a man who is lynched next to a cow who is also being strung up. And that is offensive people of color. And, you know, what they end up saying, these vegans, is like, oh, we just want to show that um, all suffering is connected. Well, yeah, all suffering is connected, but you happen to be a member of, as a white person, a member of a very uh, dominant group. And number one, there's no reason I would believe that you don't see me as some second-class citizen like you do the so I, you coming out here just talking about how we're all one in this sort of colorblind sort of mentality, that's not going to work because what that tells me is that you're not willing to actually look at yourself and look at um, the bias within you because if you believe that the world is colorblind, then obviously you're going to be part of the system that, in my view, is very racist, um, white supremacist to be, expect, uh, to be um, specific. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, so it's that disconnect because many of them tend to believe that um, racism is a thing of the past and, and it's, it, that it's not part of many of our daily lives. Um, the people, they don't even know the man's name. So I mm-hmm. do. Um, the two people that they show, the, the, the famous photos, is um, Abraham Smith and Thomas Shipp. Mm-hmm. I know their story, and I tell, you know, when I talk to white vegans, I tell them their, the story of actually what happened in, in Indiana in the 1930s. Um, these people still have relatives. This is triggering. It's triggering to all yeah. of us. Yeah. So, unfortunately, this is the kind of stuff that can turn people off from the movement and not take us seriously. And Vegan Advocacy Initiative, we're, we're mm-hmm. interested in, in talking about these issues. And when we take our approach to vegan outreach and vegan food justice, um, it is an intersectional approach. Well, you know, I, I, I've seen um, one of those, and it, and it is to me, it's very offensive, where you wonder, will you ever see something, I mean, you always see 
I don't know what time, it's either late at night or on Saturday morning, the SPCA or the Humane Society, and they've got Sparky the dog and Puffy the kitten, and, oh, they're out here and they're cold. But when are they going to start to show, I mean, bring animal animals are animal rights, you know. And so, they, like you said, they, they show the dogs, they show the cats. Now, if in that context of showing animals being mistreated, they showed animals being mistreated. You know, what's happening on the farms, I mean, that would say more to me like they got it than that showing, oh, we're hanging a cow and hanging a person. I mean, that's, too, that's, that's not the same. And I wonder, well, is it because there is that industry, that meat industry, you know, that, that it's because that industry is so powerful, do you think that that prohibits that type of transformation in the animal rights, you know, uh, visual right. image to really bring in? Right. That's, that's a good point. So where you tend to see those um, images where animals are being mistreated and, and just the death and constant suffering, um, the blood flowing and all that, the animal fighting and basically saying no, um, mm-hmm. are on YouTube where you mm-hmm. see animal rights um, organizations who go in undercover um, and then they show the filming. But you're not going to see that on CNN or ABC News at 8 o'clock. You're not going to see that. You're going to see the, 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 um, the dogs in shelters. And, and yes, I, I would say that my guess is that if someone promoted something like that, they would probably say no, it would be offensive, quote-unquote offensive to people. But I think the underlining thing is, I believe, is power. And there are laws um, in place, like the ag law in certain states that's basically heavy where you see a lot of the, the um, animal agribusiness industry that says, for example, if you take a picture, if you're across the road and you start filming, let's say, cows outside or a factory farm, you have to actually, the police can actually confiscate it. Um, Oprah, I remember back in, what, the 90s? Was it the 90s or 2000-something? I think it was 2000-something, where Oprah, um, she, you know, the ex-cattleman came in, and then she said, oh, my gosh, I'll never eat a burger again. And then for, like, three years she was in a Texas court because the law was basically saying you cannot say anything bad about these industries. So, um, yeah, the dairy industry is the same thing. What they tell us is that calcium, we need we need uh, milk in order to have our calcium. Well, we can get enough calcium in dark, leafy mm-hmm. green vegetables. I get enough calcium. Mm-hmm. So you have the propaganda that tells you that it is normal, natural, and necessary to eat animals and consume their, their secretions. Um, and then you have laws that are set in place to perpetuate this, this industry. Um, I would say we also have laws set in place to, um, that don't promote small farming. It's more geared towards the larger farmers, and that's also unfortunate. So we have a lot of work to do, um, and you know, we need to educate people as much as we can. I have found that the ones who tend to be involved in, in the ones that you can connect with um, start there and build and have conversations with them. That's, that, you know, not ones that you can't. But, you know, um, I think, like I said, I think I totally, I think there's a difference in advocacy and activism 
from communities of color than there is through white communities. And that's not to like throw all white people under the bus, all white activists don't get it, because there are some. But there is something about that that it seems like when we come together that sometimes we are able to recognize different forms of oppression, just putting, you know, putting things in a different type of perspective. Are you finding now, do you have a seat at the table for these discussions? Because, I mean, when I listen to you talk, when I read about it, I see not only animal rights, I see environmental justice, I see immigration rights. I mean, there's, yes. like you said, classism. Are you getting more of a seat at the table into where now you're able to bring this into the conversation? Right, that's a good question. Now, what I see in the animal rights movement is that more people are listening and more people are validating um, the idea that taking an intersectional approach is a more um, productive way of doing vegan um, advocacy. Um, and it's, it's a better way to connect to people. And it's, more, it's a more consistent way with our values. Because if you're talking about cruelty-free, quote-unquote cruelty-free, then you better make sure that the tomato is also, you know, cruelty. You know, in other words, the farmers aren't exploited. So, you know, you better be able to be consistent with what you're saying. Um, and there are many, um, there are white activists and many more um, activists of color who are actually, um, you know, writing stuff, um, have videos and calling the movement on um, this whole idea of intersectionality. Now, what seems to be missing um, because I believe that uh, in vegan advocacy, um, Linda Alvarez, who's, who's uh, the co-founder as well, um, she and I, um, we both believe the food justice movement must be part, I mean, the animal rights movement must be part of the environmental justice movement and the food justice movement. Um, that has been more difficult. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that is the journey that Linda and I will take as we, as we are starting this organization and um, working towards a better world. So um, hopefully, you know, organizations like our organizations will see more organizations who are interested in connecting food justice with um, the environment. Um, you know, we talk about the environment in terms of you know, what's going on with um, factory farming. We do talk about that. But there's a component with regards to food justice where um, we're not talking about food justice as it ties into the environment. And that's, in, in, in other words, how do you do small farming? We already know that um, these monocultures um, don't work. We already know that um, factory farming is horrible. So now we have this new food system, alternative food movements that we're creating. How do we now have discussions where we can include these sentient beings into our moral community? That kind of discussion is not happening. Um, we, we're, I'm not seeing it. And as VAI, we're trying to spread awareness and to... 
um, get more vegans to get involved in that space where food justice crosses or intersects with environmental justice and finding better ways. So in other words, should we have chickens in our backyard? Um, mm. Should we find better ways of eating? Um, you know, so things like that. Another thing is veganic farming versus using manure. Veganic farming is, is using more plants, like, for example, composting is one example. Um, and there are a lot of other methods, agroecology, um, ecological methods, and veganic permaculture methods. I am not an expert on it. I am learning, and so is Linda. Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, you, we're trying to find systems in which we don't have to exploit um, and basically cultivate animals. So we don't have to impregnate cows or pigs or goats or donkeys to then use them to exploit them in our food system. If we happen to have a rescue chicken or chickens or a bird around and they poop in the garden, that's one thing. But if you're actually manufacturing animals for your purpose, I think that needs to be questioned. And that is some, mm. that's a, a new territory. Um, VAI is very excited to, to be going into that territory. Um, and I think, um, you know, it remains to be seen where, what, what's going to happen. We're going to be writing articles about it. We're going to be talking about it. But um, one of our goals is to make sure that as animal rights activists, we want a seat at the table. Uh, because mm -hmm. right now, if you mention that in, in pretty much the typical food justice environment conference, it's like a bad word. <laughs> if you talk I know. About, it's a bad word. You just don't bring it up because... You know, the argument about food sovereignty is about food being appropriate, um, appropriate per, for the community and the culture. And some people, you know, usually cite culture as part of why they are, um, you know, killing chickens. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, in the United States, Everywhere is different. I can't debate what's going on in another country because um, I don't feel that it is my place to do that. Um, but in the U.S., in my community, I can start having those kinds of conversations um, where we can try to build a world where we don't have to be exploiting um, animals in that sense. And we don't have to now start teaching our five-year-old kids just like you know, my mother and the people around me taught me to actually pick a chicken out and, you know, behead the chicken right there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because that's, you're, you're desensitizing kids at a very young age. And, and I think we can, as humans, can do better than that. We really can. I do. We're going to take another short break, and then um, we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now. And listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back with more conversation with today's guest, Liz Ross. And you know, Liz, I have friends here and there who I would have these discussions with. I have uh -huh. other friends who, like, if it, if it were to talk about a restaurant, okay, all right, well, I'll try that. But if I went, you know, and if we were talking about food, 
justice and economic justice, environmental justice, it'd be fine. But to go into this way, and, you know, they, I was with a group that was talking about Black Lives Matter, and we were talking, they said, like, you know, we're, saying, we're talking about our kids getting killed, and you're concerned about a, a cow? Yeah. And, you know, and how do you, how do you pick your battles? Turn around that conversation if you are, when you, when you hit that wall. That's a good point. Um, you know, the whole thing about, well, why are we talking about a cow? Um, human issues, you know, this is an, the argument is that human issues take precedent over other issues. Um, another argument that comes in is when they do experimentation on animals. Um, that, that's another way that that happens. Um, the way I approach it is that I then say it's, these are the same things we talk about when we talk about um, white supremacy and patriarchy. It's mm. the same thing. I mean, I've literally heard things coming out from men's mouths where women are second class. They really feel deep inside that women are second class citizens um, or that white people really be obviously believing that people of color are undeserving. What I try to do is that I try to tie that in by asking them questions. So with regards to sexism or, or racism, you know, when we, when we look at, um, for example, some of these police officers who, who basically believe that some black folks are monsters and they're just, just willy-nilly capable of going to commit crimes or shoot them, you know, that fear in their mindset or the, uh, like Sandra Bland, Sandra Bland in that case, mm-hmm. in my, my argument, I mean, what I saw from that was when the cop asked her, you know, so what's wrong with you? And because obviously she looked pissed, and he was like, well, what's wrong with you? You, you seem kind of agitated. And she said, well, you know, you stopped me, stopped me, and I feel that you stopped me for no reason. I'm just telling you the truth. And so then as a former police officer, I, I know what these guys think. And some of them, the approach is, okay, you know, I'm going to put you in your place because you don't deserve, you know, A, B, and C. So in order for me to to sort of counteract that feeling that get me off in balance is that I'm going to to get me in balance as a white person. I'm going to show you to put you back in your place. So I start kind of changing it around with people of color and, and, and talk to them about issues in which um, you see humans dehumanizing other humans as undeserving. And then I say, okay, look at what do we have in common with these animals um, that makes us connected to them? Is their suffering, does their suffering matter? Is their suffering really important to us? How do we make a connection? Why is that suffering necessary? Um, And I think when I ask questions of why is that suffering necessary, and let's look at ways in which we connect, I think that's when I have other conversations. Because I do say, I say, I understand. I understand what you're saying, that you feel that animals are less than. Um, That's called speciesism. And speciesism basically is where we are conditioned to believe that some animals or, or you know, the human animals, so to speak, um, is um, at the top and all these animals are below. So, you know, not all cultures think that way. So 
why are we thinking that? Why do you believe that? And I try to kind of, I talk about my experience um, and I talk about my own evolution mm. as opposed to getting into so much a debate. I don't really like to get into debates, although I tend to be doing debates, you know, I get into debates <laughs> sometimes. But uh-huh. I try to sometimes, you know, just talk about my experience and my evolution of saying, you know, I used to think like that. I used to really believe that animals were less than. And then I realized it's not, you know, what really makes them deserving of not, um, of, of us not feeling that we need to make them suffer or exploit them? You know, what is it that we have in common with them? What do all beings have in common with them? And, and wouldn't that be a better place for us to be in as opposed to us feeling that because this cow doesn't speak English um, or doesn't have that power, um, that the cow doesn't have some or is deserving of consideration? Um, the other thing I talk about is the issue of power. Um, that, of course, plays an oppression. I can because... I could, right? Mm-hmm. Might is right. So I talk about these issues of might is right. Is it really fair? Because you can. And are, do we see situations in our lives in which there is or in the world in which there is exploitation and people just basically say, because I can, they can. You know, corporate America can. <laughs> you know, Pepsi-Cola can pay money to to get out ads and get research to support them because they can. Is that right? Is it because you can do it that, that makes it right? So, you know, I, I, I tend to like to have those discussions and when people push back, uh, and sometimes I just say, look, what I'm, what I'm sensing or in my experience, I would say that sometimes the pushback is because people feel that they are going to miss something. Um, you know, they're going to miss the taste of food. They have cravings for food. Or sometimes people get a little bit defensive because they feel that you're telling them that something's wrong with them. And that's why I think, um, you know, the, 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 the idea of coming from your personal experience or somebody else's personal experience, that you sort of take the focus off of them having to defend themselves and defend their dignity as good people. Um, so talking about, I think, my journey, because people can't negate your journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can't negate somebody else's story as well. So, but if you start asking them questions and probing, why are you such and such, they'll be like, well, you know, you're attacking me and my, and my dignity. That's one of the things like, that I think that is so important. As you talk about someone's story, it gives them the opportunity to, well, it might not be their path, but they, they are bits and pieces that they can pull from. You can, uh, I would say, um, mold your story. And I don't mean mold as in lying, but to the specific question that is asked. Um, so if, if somebody asked me, you know, if somebody talks about the issue of, well, animals are, are lower creatures, you know, then I would say, you know, I saw a movie the other day called Speciesism or something, and it was really interesting because it talked about the connections, how similar animals, all animals, um, or all sentient beings in this case, are alike. And I, I talk about how 
animal behavior, how they feel pain, you know, how they can sense. Um, for example, um, some animals can sense when there's danger. They can sense the hunter humans versus the non-hunter humans. Mm -hmm. And they fall, you know, to say who, is, who are the bad humans and who are the good humans. Um, people who have dogs or cats, you can connect with them. Um, on that level as well, you know, does your cat do this, you know, and make it fun, you know, doesn't your cat do this, doesn't your cat do that, yeah, you know, that's kind of interesting, she does do that, and, you know, what happens if you actually hurt her with a knife, can you connect with that pain, can you connect with that mm -hmm. suffering, um, you know, how, you know, how does that, how does that, you know, so I think, I think there are several ways to approach it, um, but I think coming back to people's personal experience and trying to connect where they are to understand really why they're feeling the way they are, um, which to me is usually, well, I don't want to give up my meat because it tastes good. That's usually the mm -hmm. biggest because I think mm -hmm. most people I talk to do have a sense that, you know, these, like you said, these animals are living, breathing beings. I mean, and then you have some people who are like, I don't really care. I don't feel connected. Um, you know, I'm not feeling connected. And then I start asking, well, why is it that, that we, you know, don't feel connected? So. Well, we're coming into the home stretch, and I guess I want to ask you, what's coming up with VAI? What's, what's on the agenda um, for VAI? So we, um, we launched our first conference last year, which was a huge success. It was sold out. Um, and we are going to have our conference this year again. It's called the People of Color Animal Rights Advocacy and Food Justice Conference. Um, and what it is, it, it, it basically um, it's a pushback or alternative narrative to the mainstream sort of colorblind um, narrative that um, I would say the mainstream animal rights movement seems to be stuck on. Um, this conference takes an inter intersectional approach, and it's a way for us to provide a platform for vegans of color who are doing food justice, um, animal rights, and vegan outreach. It's fantastic. We have, we're going to have a lot of speakers. Um, this year, it's going to be bigger because we're actually going to have a component for non-vegans and new vegans, and then mm. we're going to have speakers who um, are more appealing to um, activists themselves who want to take it to another level and have dialogues on, 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 on another level um, because they've heard the, you know, the vegan 101, you know, why, why go vegan or, or they've already met, you know, the vegan superstars, you know, mm -hmm. who have been doing things. A lot of people love to meet them and ask them questions about what they're doing in their lives. And then we have the food justice component, which would be for everyone. Um, we're actually looking into um, a place that's actually going to have a garden because oh, wow. um, for those who sign up, we're going to actually kind of get their hands a little bit dirty um, mm -hmm. as well, as, as well as talking about the alternative food systems that can exist um, to get, again, you know, to get their mind working on understanding, you know, the food justice movement. So we're excited. Um, I believe that it's going to be sold out because it was sold out last time. When is and it, it going, is going to take to be, place? It's going to be um, in L.A. October 21st, which is a Saturday. And um, for those 
who are interested, you can actually um, go on our website, which is Vegan AI, Vegan Advocacy Initiative. So it's veganai.org. You can uh, click on contacts to get on our mailing list. We also have our Facebook and Instagram page with the same name. Um, that's at Vegan Advocacy Initiative. Um, so that's the big event that we're going to have. We're also going to have some smaller events this year where we're going to have um, like vegan sort of dinners discussion um, with community groups. I'm going to actually um, do one at a New Way of Life reentry project again. Um, this time I'll have a presentation, so it'll be structured. The last time it was just us kicking it, they, you know, question and answer kind of stuff. This time I'm going to have a, a more um, a talk, and then after that, we're just going to have discussions where they ask us questions. Um, and then we provide the information as well um, mm -hmm. so that if you're interested in either starting or have like a, you know, a one day where you just want to go vegan, you know, wherever you can start, you know, or just to plant seeds. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, we're excited about that. And in the beginning of next year, we're going to start our six-week program of which is probably going to be a little bit online and a little bit of actually classroom setting um, or yeah. field in that sense. So, so we're excited. And, and we've been getting a lot of, um, a lot of the, the sponsors and the financial support um, has been really, really good. We've been fortunate to have that support, and, which is fantastic. You know, we don't have to worry about the cost of the conference which is great. <laughs> so. You know, Liz, you know, I I have really enjoyed talking. And, and I'll meet you next week, but I'm not, I'm no, um, I do appreciate you taking the time to be with me tonight. And um, you have been open. You know, like you said, you had this path. And as the path came on and you learned and you grew, how do you feel that all of these intersections that have influenced your life have impacted the directions you've taken and how do you see them continuing to impact your future work? Well, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, I will say that from being a police officer, having had that experience, coming from a place of, oh my gosh, Oakland, California is just, off the hook with crime, you know, what's going on? Um, why is it that pretty much one in three people I stop have a criminal history? Um, we need the military police in here. We need more of those people in authority to stop this. And then having, you know, a couple years later read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Mm -hmm. uh, Knowing, coming in as a police officer, knowing that racism did exist, but after Michelle Alexander's and also um, Khalil Gibran Mohammed's book, or Gibran Mohammed's book, um, which is called The Criminalization of Blackness, which is another fantastic book to read. Um, okay. He's the grandson of uh, Elijah Mohammed. Just reading that, I came out of thinking for example, that racism existed, but in the criminal justice system, there was literally 
organize political strategies around particularly the war on drugs or the Get Tough movement, and I saw it. So it wasn't like as I was reading it, I didn't have to – it wasn't like now someone – I was like, I don't believe you. Because I saw it what was going on. I saw the round the rounding up of people and I saw how it destroyed communities because people don't talk about um, they always talk about the, the high incarceration incarceration rates for men, but they're not talking about women and they're also not talking about what happens when these men are there in jail and what happens to their children and their mm-hmm. wives, partners or girlfriends and so on, or family members. So I saw the destruction of of family, um, but also what I saw as a police officer was that um, I moved from that sort of punitive sort of mindset, this sort of like, well, people, everyone can achieve the American dream. Um, all you have to do is work hard, and it's your fault. I started to shift to seeing, yes, people have agency. I'm not taking that away from them. But some people have it more difficult than others because of their circumstances. And some people actually, if you are enlightened and try to push back, you can die mm-hmm. or you can lose your job. So what I started to shift in that intersectional sort of um, framework is to shift to understand that there are different structures in place that because you happen to be a member of a specific group, you are treated a specific way. And how these interconnect is because we are complex beings, as you said, and we, I am not, I, I am a member of several groups, the LGBTQ community, women's community, um, black community. And I'm also not rich. I'm also not part of the 1%. Understanding that Actually, as it ties in with um, food justice and animal rights, it made sense to me because it was just another aspect of oppression and another aspect of a commonality in which there is a power system. And the United States specifically, you know, from the time, you know, white people moved here and when um, people then began to become enslaved or indentured laborers for in the case of whites um, to now then turning into slavery um, all of that there was an underlining factor and that was an elite group that wanted to wanting to wanted to maintain a status quo and their power i strongly believe that and i see evidence of that some people think that that is radical or you're being a conspiracy theorist but you can see the what i would say the common enemy Um, in where you have people who want to maintain their power, although I think people are less likely thinking that this is a conspiracy or this is kind of strange thinking when when 45 came to power. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because he normalized a lot of things. When you say take back America, what do you mean? Unfortunately, I would argue that the working class whites, if they can somehow get racism out of their framework of thinking and buying into the stereotypes of, quote-unquote, we white people are working hard and those, quote-unquote, lazy people are not, Mm -hmm. we would be connected because we would see that common element, Uh, which is what happened back in, you know, if we look at our history, that's that's when things started to take a turn because when um, working class whites 
and working class blacks started to come together. I forgot what the, the guy's name is, but there was a huge uproar where the guy wanted, he, he oh, what's his name? I can't remember his name. But um, this was when he, he um, got together white people and black folks to now push back against the plantars back then, the elites, the, the, mm-hmm. the land owners, and now they're like, oh, okay, that's not going to happen. We need to divide and conquer, right? Exactly. So, I mean, you know, we can get into this conversation and take it at many levels, but what I see is a common thread in which power seems to be um, in the hands, as we know, um, of a small group. And that seems to be trickling into different kinds of oppressions. And I think when we see that, we can stop, we can focus now on what's happening and not so much on this sort of narrative of all you need to do is pull yourself up off your bootstraps and work hard. And if you're not, then something's wrong with you and you didn't try enough. Um, mm-hmm. We tend to be, and I used to be like that too, focused on wealth. Oh, you know, in your 20s, you want to find something to gonna get rich, you know, have your own business. Everybody's going to get rich. You know, and we spend most of our lives going to get rich. And then when you get to be, at least in my experience, in your 40s, you realize you're not going to get rich. You're not, yeah, you're not, haven't got there. Um, but we're obsessed with this get rich. We're obsessed with that. I would, I would, I would say that in what you're doing and in, and in thinking, if we are able to, to get this and to get this right, you know, to to see this intersectionality, not only between all the, the, the different environmental, you know, social justice issues, and bringing this other part in about the animal rights, the, the vegan advocacy initiative, you know what, we might be able to redefine what being rich is. That's that's my hope. That's my that's my mission. <laughs> but Liz, again, I want to thank you for being with me. We will be talking. Because well, thank it's you so for much... having me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Definitely. I want you, you travel safely. And I will. Um, Great. Thank you. I, I definitely look forward to it. And I am looking forward to going back home on my uh, two-week trip. It'll be really fantastic. So I haven't seen my mom in a while. So. Well, you have a good, a good trip. And again, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. I want to thank, uh, I want to again thank tonight's guest. I hope you enjoyed hearing about this and it gave you something to think about. But um, you can listen to the show each week by following Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. That's all for tonight. Please join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. That's right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you and good night.